Our Father, we are so thankful that you have given us a future hope, a future guarantee of what is yet to come, that this body in the twinkling of an eye will be changed, that this mortality will put on immortality, that this perishable will put on the imperishable, and then the saying will come about that death is swallowed up in victory. We're so thankful that you have saved us from the very penalty of sin, that as we study your word this morning, that you will continue to save us from the power of sin as our minds are renewed and as we yield to the Spirit. But some glorious, precious, wonderful day when your Son comes, you will save us from the very presence of sin, that we will become like him when we see him in the sense that you promised us a brand new body suited to walk on streets of gold. Until that day comes, we humbly yield today and ask the Spirit to direct our minds. For all listening, for those who've never met Jesus, we pray today would be a turning point. And for those who have, may we heed the scripture that we are reading and make appropriate application. Please come help me in my weakness, fill me and anoint me and use me for Jesus' sake and in his name I pray. Amen. I want to invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to the book of 2 Timothy, the third chapter. If you're joining us for the first time before we begin our next verse-by-verse exposition of a book of the Bible, God has put it in my heart to do a series, and I am entitling this series, God's Prophetic Schedule. And as you can see from your bulletin outline, today's message is the signs of the times. Now, we are living in challenging times in fact, our passage tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that these are the last days, that these are difficult times, that these are dangerous days. And I believe with all my heart that the sands of time is running low. And God is coming back, maybe sooner than we realize, to catch up, to snatch up his church. Now, I've preached the Bible for a long time. And as a student of the Word of God, I believe that God is preparing the world for Jesus to step out of heaven and come back, first to catch up his church, then to rule and reign for a thousand years. Just know that this world, this planet that we're living in, is on a collision course with judgment and with disaster. See, the function of the gospel is not to try to save civilization from wreckage. This world is headed to wreckage. In fact, ultimately, as we looked at in our last session together, God is going to take the whole planet and burn it with fire and create a new heavens and a new earth. The gospel is intended to save men from the wreckage of civilization. He hasn't called us to a social gospel. That doesn't mean we don't care about social needs. It's difficult to preach the gospel to a hungry stomach. But the gospel we preach concerns the death, burial, and the resurrection and deliverance from the eternal wrath of Almighty God. And there are many social engineers in our day who are like men on the Titanic rearranging the chairs and shining the brass as it's headed down into the waters. And so God has given us much prophecy. Some would say as much as a third of the Bible. Dr. Walford would always tell us one third of the Bible is prophetic in nature. And the fact is, is that most of the prophecies in the New Testament and the Old Testament have yet to be fulfilled. Now, the fact that God literally actually fulfilled over 300 of them concerning the first coming of the Messiah is a reminder that this is the only book God write, but two, that he will fulfill them in the exact same way. 
And so this morning we are in 2 Timothy chapter 3. I want to begin by reading our passage. Follow along. I'm reading from the New American Standard beginning now in verse 1. But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men of depraved mind rejected in regard to the faith. But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Janus and Jambres' folly was also. Now remember, when Paul writes this letter, he's not under house arrest. He's in a dirty, dark, damp Roman prison. He's already been condemned, and he is soon to be executed. This is his last will and testament that he writes to Timothy before he is beheaded. And he writes under the shadow of execution, knowing that he has poured his life into the preaching of the gospel for 30 years. And he's writing this letter basically to ask and answer, what will happen after I am gone? Who will carry on the message of salvation? Now, he knows from a divine point of view, the gates of hell shall not prevail against God's church. But from a human point of view, God uses courageous men and women to pull it off. And so he wants to put some spiritual steel, not just into Timothy's spine, who will read this letter initially, but to all who will study it in the centuries to follow. So knowing that the opposition is strong, knowing that the days are evil, he is underscoring Timothy's need and by application and extension our need to be faithful with the gospel. The things that you have heard from me, Timothy, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. It's not a verse on discipleship as it is often used out of context today. It's a verse to Timothy reminding him that he is to work with other pastors, men who are gifted and anointed of God who have the ability to teach the word of God. That's why I was away last weekend. It was a pleasure to be with a young pastor and just to fellowship with him and to build into his life and he into mine. And so God wants to prepare Timothy to run the race well all the way to the end. And so he tells him about these last days, first the climate of the last days, that is what will, what will it be like for God's people? And then as we'll see in just a moment, the characters of the last day, who will be causing this climate? So let's first begin with the climate of the last days. Verse one begins, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. And he underscores two truths from this verse. First, that we are living in the last days. That's point A on your outline, we are living in the last days. 
Now, I think it would be helpful for us to define this biblical phrase, the last days, because sometimes people will ask me and they'll say, well, Pastor Carl, do you believe that we're living in the last days? And my short answer is, well, it all depends on what you mean by the last days. It may seem natural to apply this term last days to that future time just before Jesus comes back from heaven. But in the Bible, it has a much broader usage. As you read the New Testament, it's obvious that the apostles believed that they were living in the last days, that a new age had arrived with the last days, that the old deal, the Old Testament, the old covenant was passing away, and what God had promised, what God's people had been looking for for thousands of years had come, and the last days had arrived. That's why the Apostle Peter, on the birthday of the church on Pentecost, can stand up and say in Acts 2, but this, what they had just witnessed, the miracle of 15 different languages and dialects being spoken, nothing like what we see today. It was an outward miracle of the inward promise of the new covenant that God would put the spirit within them. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour out my spirit upon all mankind. So Peter believed that he was in the last days as seen by this external manifestation of the indwelling promise of the spirit. In similar fashion, the writer of the Hebrews opens his epistle with these words. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the world. And so, this being so, the New Testament, with the birthday of the church, with the arrival of Jesus on the planet, tells us that we are in the last days. And we who are living in this day tend to think, well, the last days happens at the end of the age. Well, that's one aspect of it because we are in the last days. And one of the questions that it would be more appropriate to ask is, are we in the last of the last days? And if we are, how would we know? Well, again, you have to let Scripture interpret Scripture And understand that the days that we are in, beginning on Pentecost, was different from all the other days because up until that time, it was just a promise. But now the promise had been fulfilled. But as we'll see in our passage this morning, some of the character traits of the last days that were not only evident in Timothy's day, are evident in our day, but the differences he will underscore in verse 13 is that these character traits will go from bad to worse. That the very things that Timothy saw would get worse. Timothy knew he was in the last days. Otherwise, Paul's instruction would make no sense to him. He says, here's what the men of the last days will be like, and he'll say, we just read it, avoid such men as these. So he knew that the last days had begun in his day, but there is indeed a future dimension to it. A second reason we know that we are in the last days is because the return of Jesus for his church is imminent. When we speak of the imminent return of Christ, that means he can come back at any moment. Now, sadly today, not all Christians believe in the imminent return. 
They say, well, there's all kinds of prophecy that has to be fulfilled for the second coming to take place. They are post-tribulationalists. They say the church will be here for the great tribulation, then Jesus will come back. But that doesn't dovetail with the New Testament. And so you have another category realizing that doesn't dovetail with the New Testament, but also historically in their theology denying any future for Israel, they say, well, the tribulation period, the Antichrist, all those things, that was all fulfilled in the first century. R.C. Sproul was one such guy. Good man, loved him. Alistair Begg, play him on our radio station, love the man. But they're amillennialists. They believe there's no future literal rule and reign of Jesus on the earth. So the next event is the second coming and it's all wrapped up. Well, listen, how did God fulfill the prophecies concerning the first coming? Actually, literally, just as he said. So when he said Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, he's born in Bethlehem. When it says he'd be pierced through for our iniquities, he was pierced through, crucified on a cross. Over 300 prophecies literally fulfilled. And so you have to apply a different principle of interpretation called a hermeneutic when it comes to end times prophecy to come up with amillennialism. I was speaking to an amillennialist recently and I said, well, listen, he was listening to this sermon by Vadi Bauckham. I said, look, I love Vadi Bauckham. Invited him to preach here one time. Couldn't get him. But he's an amillennialist. And I said, so what would Vadi do when the scripture says there's going to be a river that flows from the Temple Mount all the way to the Dead Sea? The Dead Sea will be so fresh that it will be filled with fish and men will be able to fish in it. Well, people spiritualize that. And they say, well, you know, the Dead Sea, it's like this dead world and we're fishers of men. No, the prophecies concerning the second coming will be fulfilled in the exact same way. So the rapture happens first. It's called the catching up of the church. The harpazo, people say, well, the word rapture is not in the Bible. Neither is the word Bible in the Bible. Neither is the word Trinity in the Bible. But the idea that God is going to catch up the church from the Latin translation of the Bible used for a thousand years, we get our English word rapture. And so the Bible teaches of the imminent return of Christ, that he could come at any moment, that nothing prophetically has ever needed to be fulfilled for the rapture. So in that sense, we're in the last days. Now, the second coming is a prophetically driven event. All kinds of things have to happen. So first he comes in the air. Jesus made that great promise in the upper room. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, he's in heaven. You may be also. He's going to take us there. And it could happen one of these days, maybe again sooner than we realize. People say, well, wait a minute. The gospel of the kingdom has to be preached to the whole world, and then the end will come. That's true if you're a post-millennialist. I mean, if you're a a post-tribulationalist and you eliminate the rapture, the catching up of the church before the tribulation. Nothing has to happen for the rapture. In fact, if you look at that verse, and we will later in this series, God willing, contextually, he's talking about the great tribulation period when the gospel will go out to the whole world and every tribe, tongue, and nation will be converted and then Jesus' second coming 
will take place. So all kinds of things have to happen for the second coming. There has to be a one world global economy. There has to be a one world ruler. There has to be a rebuilt temple in the Temple Mount that will be defiled. And God is setting the stage for those days. In fact, as you look at the prophecy for the second coming, most of it all centers around Israel. And so when seemingly nothing happened for 18 or 1900 years, the church concluded what Catholics taught, that they were the new Israel. And God was done with the Jewish people. And yet again, you have to spiritualize scripture. Listen to what Moses wrote 1400 years before Christ. Deuteronomy 4.27. Both Moses and the Lord Jesus, by the way, predicted not only the scattering of the Jewish people, but their regathering. The Lord, Yahweh, will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. Jesus taught the same thing in Luke chapter 21, that after his departure, he predicted the destruction of the temple and the scattering of the Jewish people. And they, he said, will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive, where? Into all the nations. So we're not talking about the Babylonian captivity or the Assyrian captivity. We're talking about a scattering, and those two were history when Jesus writes this, into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And it happened, just as Jesus said, beginning in 70 A.D., in Deuteronomy chapter 28, at the end of his life, Moses gave a similar warning. Moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. And he says in Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 4, if your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord will gather you and from there he will bring you back. I just read from Deuteronomy 4, the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, among the nations. But then a few verses later in Deuteronomy 4, he says, but from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search for him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in distress, this is when it's going to happen. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble. We call it in the New Testament, the great tribulation. In this time of worldwide distress, the Jewish people are gonna wake up. When you are in distress, and all these things happen to you in the latter days. Now, the term last days is different from latter days and latter times. As you work through those phrases in the Old Testament, the latter times, the last days, refers to that time frame at the end of the age before the second coming of the Messiah when he comes to rule and reign. In the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. And the Apostle Paul in Romans 11 identifies that time frame as the great tribulation, as does Jesus, as does the revelation. So who would have ever dreamed that in May of 1948, Israel would become a nation after nearly 1,900 years? Who would have imagined the permissiveness of Noah's day being so widespread in America and the perversion of Lot's day having such a platform? And so we are living at the end of the age. Dr. Walverd, one of my professors at Dallas Seminary, the president at the time, he said, Israel is the super sign. It's the super prophecy. Harry Ironside, whom I never met, but I listened to a number of his messages as a new believer. When Israel became a nation in 1948, he said it was like I would go to bed every night with my eyes open. 
He just lived with an expectation that Jesus could come at any moment. And these guys who had been mocked and laughed at, along with others four or 500 years before that since the Protestant Reformation, who didn't follow the anti-Semitism of Luther or Calvin, they were verified as believing the actual truth. So while the sins that are described in this section of Scripture were true in Timothy's day, and they were true a thousand years ago, and they were true a hundred years ago, the Bible warns us that they will intensify at the end of the age. If you remember in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus said, because lawlessness is increased, and the American Standard Version, 1901, which is the predecessor to the text that most of you have in your laps this morning, it says, when lawlessness is multiplied. In other words, as we move into the end of the age, sin is going to increase, it's going to multiply. And most people's love, and we, when we study this, God willing, we will see contextually, he's talking about the church. Most people's love will grow cold. So you need to pay attention this morning. Because we often think, well, this isn't me, this is somebody else. The Lord Jesus warns that at the end of the age, most people's love, speaking of his people, are growing, it's going to grow cold. And so Paul will remind Timothy here in verse 13, but evil men and imposters will proceed, how? From bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now, in the fullest sense, the birth pangs of Matthew 24 happens when the water breaks. And the water breaks when this church is ruptured, and the rupture will begin with the rapture. Jesus will come and remove his people. All of the restraining influence of the church, the Spirit of God in the church will be removed, and sin will have a holiday, and sin will spread like never before. But when you put all these factors together, while no one knows the day or the hour, we do know we are in that time frame that we are at the end of the age. You say the end of the world? No, the Bible never uses the phrase the end of the world. Now, a few old translations did, but the New King James doesn't because it's the word for age, the end of an age. The world will never end in the truest sense and that the Bible teaches we go from age to age to age and there's a coming new age when God will create a new heaven and a new earth. But we do know at the end of the age, the super sign will be fulfilled. The permissiveness and perversion of Noah's and Lot's day will be in place. And added to that, as we did a whole message on it, there'll be gross apostasy. So we are living in the last days. Secondly, we also learn we are living in difficult times. We are living in difficult times. Let's keep reading, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. The King James renders it, perilous times shall come. Ever since the birthday of the church, we have been living in perilous and difficult times. And church history certainly confirms that. And the word for difficult or perilous is used outside of the Bible of a vicious wild beast. It's only found in one other place in all the New Testament, and it's used to describe the Gerardine demoniac. Remember him? There was two of them, but one who was highlighted over the other, who was in chains, and he was a madman, and he was vicious, and people were terrified of that man. Same word used here. They were exceedingly violent so that no one could pass by that road. So this gives us an idea of the seasons 
of what the times will be like before Jesus comes back. And we are living in days of increasingly moral, political, international darkness. There's a rapid decline. And so Paul wants Timothy to understand from verse 13, while these traits have always been true, these traits will not be uniformly true. Just like the New Testament teaches that Messiah came into a very dark world. He did. That's what the prophets wrote. He'd be like a light shining in darkness. When Jesus came into the Roman Greco culture, it was a dark, evil, idolatrous, immoral culture. But the light of the gospel changed that. At the end of the age, it's going to repeat itself because the church becomes lukewarm. Its ability to salt righteousness and dispel darkness with its light will be dissipated and evil will grow. Not because it has to, but because of choices people are making as they listen to the culture and to the spirit of the age. And so, again, as we work through this passage of scripture, I want you to realize that difficult times will come. Now, wait a minute. Why does he command him to realize, another translation says, understand? It seems obvious. I mean, what is there to realize? It's right in front of my eyes, Paul. You're in prison for preaching the gospel. You're about to get beheaded. Timothy also knew that everyone in Asia had deserted Paul with the exception of the household of Anesiphorus. So why does he need to realize what he apparently already knows? I think Paul is reminding him for two reasons. First, to emphasize that this is not some passing fancy. This is a permanent characteristic of the age. And second... That is, he will underscore in verse 13, it's not going to get better, it's going to go from bad to worse. So those, that's the climate of the last days. Secondly, there in your outline, I want us to think through a little bit about the characters of the last days. The characters, who are the players, so to speak? Well, in verse 2, Paul immediately goes on to say, for men will be. Now, the word men here is anthropos. It's the all-inclusive word. You could say men and women, or some translations say people. People will be. So he's describing people. Difficult times will come because people, men and women, will be self-centered. And so while I'm not underestimating the fallen nature of man, many times we love to blame things on the devil that he has nothing to do with. James 1.13 says people are often carried away just by their own fallen evil lust. You can't say, well, the devil made me do it or a demon made me do it. Now, certainly there are three uh, forces that wage war against the believer that if you've been through the discovery class, we examine those in great depth. The world, the flesh, and the devil, and they work together. The devil may inspire one Hollywood producer to create an evil movie that will grab people's attentions and it will feed the sin nature. So they intersect with one another. But Paul wants Timothy to understand that while our fallen nature is very much at work, there's a spiritual battle going on. Turn back to chapter one for a moment. Turn back a page in your Bible to chapter one for just a moment. Look at chapter one and let's read verse 13. He says there, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me and the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. And then he adds, guard 
through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, the treasure which has been entrusted to you. So he speaks here of the standard of sound words. That word for standard is an architectural term in the first century. It was used of what today we would call a blueprint. He's saying, don't dismiss the blueprint. And many churches have become woke. And so the largest Southern Baptist church in the state of Florida, as it came out this week, has been baptizing homosexual people. People who are in homosexual marriage. Why? Because people want to be liked. A preacher doesn't want any conflict. He wants everyone to like him. Jesus said, woe to you if all men speak well of you, for so they spoke of the false prophets who went before you. You don't throw away the blueprint, but when you embrace this new false teaching propagated by Sam Albury, among others, of that a Christian can be a same-sex attracted Christian and he doesn't need to repent of it, you're going to open the door to people who say, I can hold on to my sin and not be converted as traditional, historical, biblical Christianity teaches. And you're going to end up baptizing people who have refused to acknowledge their sin as sin. And so throughout this letter, throughout Paul's final will and testament, he's going to underscore the standard. Look at verse 8 of this chapter. He has said, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. And notice, he can reason in verses 12 and 13 here of chapter 1, for this reason I also suffer these things. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Retain the standard, the blueprint of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Listen to your pastor. God does not want you to forsake the blueprint. He doesn't want you to be embarrassed over the blueprint. And if you are embarrassed, you need to repent of that embarrassment. This is either absolute truth, this book, or it's folly. And you must decide. And so Andy Stanley, who was famous a couple years ago for preaching that sermon called Unhitching the Old Testament, just in March of this year, just a few months ago, he referred to the Old Testament, and I quote directly from his manuscript, as ancient declarations of superstitious men. Why would a pastor say that? Because you want to be liked. You don't want to say that there was a real man, Adam and Eve, and that there's a God who literally created the world in six literal actual days. And so while we're not underscoring our fallen nature in this text, we need to understand that there is a spiritual battle that goes on, and the battle will intensify. Look at the uh, last two verses here, last three verses of chapter two. Remember, the chapter and verse divisions are artificial. So you want to always look contextually at the passage you're studying. Look at verse 24 of chapter two. He says, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, 
patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. According to 2 Timothy 2.26, there are some people who are driven, who are literally captive by the devil because of choices they make. We studied a month or so ago, 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1. Let me refresh you with that verse. But the Spirit explicitly says, in latter times, again, we have studied that phrase. It refers not just to the last days that began with Christ being on the earth, with Pentecost, but to the end of the age before the second coming. He says explicitly that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith. We call that apostasy. Paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. So there are false teachers who have always come into the church who are agents of the devil. A demon doesn't step into a pulpit and say, I am here to represent the devil. But if the devil disguises himself as an angel of light, Paul says, so don't his pastors. But he wants to underscore that the Spirit explicitly says at the end of time, at the end of the age, age in the last of the last days... This demonic battle is only going to increase. There's no way to explain what we have seen in the last two or three years except by an increase of demonic activity. And so while we do not know the day or the hour, we do know the final time frame. And clearly in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be. He's describing the very character of them, and part of what they are is not just a reflection of their fallenness, but because we wage war against flesh and blood. So let's consider what these men are like. First, the moral conduct. Point A, the moral conduct in the last days. Let's think about the moral conduct in the last days. Now, in the verses that follow, there are no fewer than 19 expressions that are used to describe men of the last days who increasingly turn away, who apostatize from God. Look, not all unbelievers are apostates, but all apostates are unbelievers. An apostate is someone who wears the cloak of Christianity and either kicks it out of his life or redefines it. They fall away from the faith, the body of truth. And so the globalism of our day the turning away from the faith, the growing evil and immorality is a reminder of the time frame that we are in. And when we look at this list, we're not to be afraid, we're not to panic. These things are given as Dr. Pentecost used to always tell us, not to scare us, but to prepare us. God wants us to be prepared so we will be ready. Notice in this first catalog, he uses this term lovers. In fact, you will find it four times in these 19 expressions. For men, he says in verse 2, will be lovers of self, lovers of money, and then he closes in verse 4 with lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So first he mentions people who are lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. And so the repeated use of the term love is what 
fundamentally drives this self-centeredness. You know, we often say as pastors, the heart of the problem is a problem of the human heart. God commands us to love him supremely above all else, and he tells us secondly to love our neighbor as ourself. But if we love ourselves supremely, we will not love God and we will certainly not love our neighbor as they are worthy. And so every one of these characteristics are an expression of a person who basically says, I'm number one. And that's really the root of all sin. We don't want him to rule over us, Jesus said. It's a rebellious, I want to be my own king and the master of my own fate. And so... This self-love, it's evident even in little children, is it not? Uh, They want their way. You have to train them differently because by nature, by bent, by birth, they are self-centered little people. And a healthy society will help to develop well-mannered little children. But when the church is weak and God's standards are jettisoned, then you have more and more children who don't have any respect for authority. And we've seen some of these self-centered ways of thinking intensify during the pandemic, where so many kids came back, or during the pandemic, they were failing their tests and getting the F letter. They said, well, we, we, we don't need to grade in that way. This is too damaging to their little psyches. And so we have created this new grading system that is no longer A, B, C, D, and F. Add to that, uh, we have criminals where we see this self-love being expressed through leaders in our country who we say they have rights. So they go in and they smash jewelry stores and they steal product or as we saw this past week they went in and destroyed and annihilated this guy's restaurant because they didn't get their order filled the way they wanted and they're on film and they're laughing and they're mocking why because they know there's no real consequence and when you take the sword away from the police you take away that authority through some liberal judge or some district attorney who's afraid to enforce the law, then havoc will increase. And we are seeing that. So these criminals are given these new rights, but they don't respect the rights of others as they rob and maim other people. And so we're now living in a self-indulgent generation where people are getting high and taking pills and there's ever-growing contempt for the law. And sadly, we say, well, this is just a mental illness. It's not a mental illness problem. It's a sin problem. When we were in Raleigh last weekend, there were literally thousands of signs all across the city on people's front lawns. You have seen them, we believe. But one that caught my attention was one that was in front of a church. Here it is. In this congregation, we believe love is love. That basically means you can have a physical relationship with anyone you want, whether it's heterosexual or homosexual, as long as you love each other, because love is love. Black lives matter. What do we mean by that? Well, here's from their own website. The three founders... 
three women, said, quote, we disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages that collectively care for one another, especially our children, to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. We make space for transgender brothers and sisters to participate and lead. We foster a queer-affirming network. When we gather, we do so with the intention of freeing ourselves from the tight grip of heteronormative thinking, that's heterosexual marriage, or rather the belief that all in the world are heterosexuals unless he or she discloses otherwise. None of, I mean, think this, you know, and so we have all these evangelical Christians. They don't want to, I mean, do you want to be called a racist? I don't want to be called a racist. But when you have white people focusing on white superiority, or you have black people focusing on their black superiority, you have a problem. You have a problem of someone who's never been regenerated. Because when someone is fundamentally born again, by this we know we've passed out of death into life, we love the brethren. And you don't care their stripe or color, red and yellow, black and white, they're precious in his sight. There's a love, there's an affinity that the family brings. But you got all these evangelicals marching in these Black Lives Matter demonstrations, not knowing what they were really endorsing, some of them, some of them in sheer ignorance. And of course, none of these women acknowledge what they've done with a lot of the money, they are under investigation for the new 6.5 million, 6,500 square foot home they bought in California. Third, climate change is real. That means we worship Mother Earth. No human being is illegal. That means there's no borders. Contrary to what God writes in the Old Testament, contrary to what God writes in the New Testament, you have a nation with no borders and you have chaos. You don't have a nation. All genders are whole, holy, and good. God says there's not 80 or 100 genders as people are advocating in this church. There's two genders, male and female. Women have agency over their bodies. What does that mean? That means that they can kill the precious little baby that God planted in their womb. And so people are no longer asking, what does the Bible say? They're simply asking, what do I want to believe? He continues, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money. So one follows the other as night follows day. If you love self, you'll love money. And in this universe, there's God, there's people, and there are things. We should worship God, we should love people, and we should use things. But if we start worshiping ourselves as lovers of selves, then we will, in essence, ignore God. We will love things and we'll use people. And folks who get caught up in this, their lives are meaningless. And we wonder why there's so much depression in our day. And a need to see these doctors and to get a pill to fix the so-called mental illness I'm going through. And so our government just recently documented that the American economy, not the national economy, but the individual family economy, is now in worse shape than it was in 2008. That the average family now is in more debt, whether it's credit card, junk debt, school debt, house debt, than they were in 2008. Why? Because they love things. 
The next three, notice, boastful, arrogant, and revilers, they flow really as a triplet. If someone loves and worships himself, the result is they'll become boastful. So Paul says, lovers of money, boastful. It's a Greek word that means a braggart. If you love money and you live to acquire things, you'll be consumed with those things and you typically become boastful unless you have a right God-given directed spirit. You'll talk about how great you are, how much you have. That, of course, leads to the next on the list, arrogant. Just listen to the many politicians. Just listen to the many actors in Hollywood, to the sports and athletic leaders, and you'll know what arrogant is. Paul says, I am what I am by the grace of God. In contrast to the arrogant person who thinks he's so great and often too good to be damned, Included in this triplet, notice revilers. The New King James in the Net Bible says blasphemers, and that's good because it's the Greek word blasphemos, giving us our word blasphemy. And the word blasphemy goes in two directions, towards God and towards man. Just listening to a speech our president recently given six times in the course of just two or three minutes, he used God's name in vain. I didn't hear anybody comment on it. I thought, this guy keeps using God's name in vain. And when I went back and looked at the clip later on, I counted six times in about two and a half minutes. And of course, when you've lost all respect for God, you will lose respect for your fellow man. You will revile. The ESV says you'll act abusively. Because if you have an exaggerated opinion of yourself, you'll run down the guy next to you. The next five words, they're all together. And we know that because there's a prefix on the front of each word. It's the alpha prefix. Just like in English, the word A often negates the word. So we speak of the millennium reign of Christ, that he'll rule for a millennium, a thousand years. And the amillennial view means there's no millennium. And so, just like in English, the word, the letter alpha means non or no. And so, let's keep reading. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents. Now, you don't see that in the English text, but there's an alpha there. Now, the average family today, sadly, are raising children who have no respect for authority, either inside the home or outside the home. And of course, with adultery being the number one cause for divorce, with over 50% of marriages ending in divorce, many times children are being raised in a home not by their biological fathers and mothers. And they're often confused. And when you add to that the rising tide of promiscuity that's being fed to these children in our government school system, what does that do to a child? It damages his little conscience. It scars his conscience. And so we have this godless teaching on transgenderism, on homosexuality, on critical race theory, of abortion, on sexual indulgence. And the further they get into the grade scheme, the more intense it becomes. So I have a dad in my office in tears 
because he has two middle school daughters in the Bluffton school system where they were being taught transgenderism. So save your letters and don't tell me it's not being taught. I had 18 police officers, administrators, principals, associate principals right out there in that cafe. There was a crisis in our town, a gas leak in one of the high schools. They said, we, we need a facility if there's a mass shooting or a tornado. We need a place where we can bring the kids so the parents can find them. Can we use your facility? I said, oh, we would be honored to serve you under one exception. If a boy is born a boy, he can't go into a girl's bathroom. And if a girl is born a girl, she can't go into a boy's bathroom. And if you can give me a signed letter with that said, you can use this facility. And they're going back and forth because they're probably thinking, if we have a letter like this, we'll get sued. I should have said it. I said, look, this is God's place, and we don't want it defiled. I said that, but what I should have said, but you want me to be sued. So you get some kid who goes in here who claims he's a girl and use the bathroom, and then you sue us. I've yet to see a letter, so don't tell me it's not going on. Save your letters and emails, because I know what I hear in counseling, and I can't even begin to share because of confidences, but it is going on in our county. Now listen, we need to pray for these principles and administrators and teachers who are born-again Christians, some of our own. But in reference to your kids, I would say, get them out. Get them out. They're destroying your little children. And that's why 90% of them are just walking away from the faith. So we can invite witches and socialists and drag queens into our schools. But don't let there be a word from the Bible Is it any wonder, according to Pew and Barna, basically the same stats, 65% of 15-year-olds and 25% of 13-year-olds say they're involved sexually with members of the opposite sex. That's not even same-sex people. But listen, if children do not respect and obey their parents, then whom will they respect? If there's no respect and loyalty in the home, the smallest microcosm of life, there'll be no respect in the society. And what is happening in America is heartbreaking as we have a generation of children that increasingly are becoming disobedient to their parents. And I believe what is being set is the terminal generation who will give their allegiance to the Antichrist. And so we have a generation of children who are disobedient to parents, making them, look at the next two, ungrateful and unholy. And most of the time, because of the way dad and mom are, children who feel entitled will be ungrateful. Children who've never learned to sweat and work and what a dollar really means because they're just given it will typically be ungrateful. And I happen to believe that it's not pharisaical when you're there with your family to hold hands or however you want to do it and bow your heads and give thanks to God in a public restaurant. In addition, he mentions them as being unholy. And sadly, that's the state of this nation where we've lost all sense of decency. I mean, what even happened among teenage Christian girls to the wholesome look? 
Seems to me like a lot of them work hard to look sensual. And I wonder, have they met the living God? And so biblical values are now ridicule, where we call good evil and evil good. The next three is rather chilling. Look at the first one, unloving. It's a Greek word that is used both in and outside of the Bible to describe family love. The King James trying to capture the meaning of a storgos uses three English words, and beautifully, without natural affection. And so the family is under attack. The devil knows as a nation, as the family goes, so goes the nation. And we have more and more unnatural love. I mean, who would have ever believed that children would murder their parents? A month doesn't go by. Sometimes a week doesn't go by where there's not some spot where some guy came in, some child murdered his own parents. But parents are murdering their own children, both in and outside of the womb. And many parents have been sold a bill of goods that children are an imposition and they are a burden. And so very often someone other than dad and mom are raising the children. Only 27% of American homes have what we call a traditional home where dad and mom raise the kids together where the mother stays at home. Now, I just got a letter this week, and I called the lady back. The Bible doesn't teach that a woman should stay at home. I said, have you not read Titus chapter 2? A woman is to be a worker at home. And again, my hat is off to any woman who has to work to put food on the table. And again, we're not dealing with single mothers because in the context, there's an assumption that the woman is married to her husband. But women will go off to the university and their head is going to be hammered with you're meaningless, you're worthless, you're nothing if you don't go out and get a career when you leave this place. But for you to get married and stay at home, that's meaningless. That's what these young women are being taught. You want what the world has, do what they want. Do what they do and you'll get it. You'll raise rebellious children because no one can raise them with the passion that God has put in your heart to raise them with. Yes, that lady left the church, and there may be others, but I'm not here to make you my friend. I am here as your pastor to tell you the truth because I care about your kids. Without natural affection, it's also seen, of course, in the LGBTQ movement, that is storming our nation. Listen to these words that Isaiah wrote in his day to Israel that was ripe for judgment, but now not just Israel, America, and the nations of the world. He said in Isaiah 3, the expression of their faces bears witness against them, and they display their sin like Sodom. There's no shame. These churches with flags out in front, banners out in front, There's no shame. They do not even conceal it. Woe to them. For they have brought evil on themselves. And so they've come out of the closet and right on to primetime TV. Hey, listen, if if you had some immoral couple living next door 
and they left their windows, blinds up, would you say to your son, hey son, sit on this box right here, and you just look through their window, and you enjoy yourself. Oh, pastor, I would never do that. But we take that little box, and we put it right in our living room, and we tell our children to feed on this, and we wonder why so many are turning from the living God, Listen, God says, I covered it a few weeks ago, that laws are written to curb this kind of behavior. 1 Timothy 1 says that, that man's laws are not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly, for sinners, for the unholy, for the profane, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers. He says laws are made for immoral men, for homosexuals, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and anything else contrary to sound teaching. God tells us that laws are to be written not to condone this behavior, but to curb this behavior because God knows the consequences. Now, our president wrote an executive order just came out, the title of it is, The Executive Order on Advancing Equality for Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender, Queer, and Intersex Individuals. It's section three of the June 15th, 2022 Executive Order. Let me just quote a portion of it. He said, the government is to, quote, increase public awareness of the harms and risks associated with so-called conversion therapy, for the LGBTQI plus youth and their families. In collaboration with the Secretary of the Treasury, the Secretary of Home and Human HSS, uh, the Secretary and Administrator of the United States Agency for International Development, these departments shall develop an action plan to promote an end to its use around the world. Then it goes on to speak of a different kind of counseling that they are to propagate that seeks, quote, to prevent or reduce behaviors associated with family rejection. So a kid comes home from school and he's being told, it's okay, you're a transgender, honey. Mom, I'm a girl now. Well, according to this executive order, he wants to reduce families who think that way. He wants to write laws against that. Again, that seeks to prevent or reduce behaviors associated with family rejection of the LBDQI youth by providing developmentally appropriate support, counseling, or information to parents, families, caregivers, child welfare. That would be like DSS. You think they're coming after your kids? Some of the things I said a decade ago, I was laughed at. I was told I was extreme. I'm telling you where this is going if the Lord doesn't first catch up the church. You got a child and, and he says he's transgender and you say you're not, honey, and, and I'm going to bring you to counseling that will teach you otherwise from God's holy word. You may be deemed, as we got two cases going on right now, an unfit parent. Caregivers, child welfare, school personnel, or healthcare professionals on how to support the LBTQ youth safely and well-being. So according to the president's order, if I try to counsel someone, they call it conversion therapy. I can't convert anyone, but I can preach the gospel and God can convert a person. God can make them a new creature. God can rescue them out of this lifestyle. 
And he's saying that what I am doing as a pastor and what Christian counselors and psychologists and psychiatrists who hold on to the biblical word worldview is harmful. Woe to you who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. That's where we're at. And listen, as I just read from 1 Timothy 1, if this was indeed something you are born with, then how could God hold a homosexual accountable on the same level that he holds a kidnapper, a perjurer, or a murderer? He couldn't. But this is what God says. God says there's just two genders. In the beginning, he created them male and female. And so God gives clear evidence as to how he has created us. There's no such thing as gender fluidity. And I know we think we are so smart and so wise, but God calls the wisdom of this world foolishness. He continues, the fifth negative prefix word is translated here, irreconcilable. Another English text says unappeasable. Another says truce breaker. I suppose there's not one English word that can capture it all. One of the marks of the last days will be truce breaking. And so it describes someone who doesn't keep his promises. It might be in business. I've done a lot of business in my early years with people just on a handshake. All they needed was my word. I'm not saying you should do that, but I'm just telling you how how I've done it many, many times. Well, in the last days, there'll be more and more truce breakers. And of course, it's fleshed itself out, especially in marriage, where people make a promise to God Almighty that nothing will separate us until death do us part or the Lord Jesus comes back. And let me just say parenthetically, if you've already broken your marriage and you've been remarried, you are in the will of God. And what God has called clean, no man is to call unholy. But do not justify just because you have now a great second marriage. Do not justify that this was God's ideal because God's ideal is one man, one woman until death severs the relationship. Truce breakers. And so Paul links these five words together with family life. The next seven words are wider than the family. Notice malicious gossips. The Greek word diabolos is often translated gossip or malicious gossip. We get our word diabolical or devil. And of course, the devil, his name means he's a slanderer. And that's what people do is they destroy a good name and they slander you. People who don't keep their word, who are irreconcilable, who are truce breakers, will often then slander you to drag you down to justify what they've done. He adds then, without self-control. That's a large part of our population, where the mentality is, if it feels good, then do it. In addition to this lack of self-control, he describes people who are brutal. Uh, The Net Bible says savage. The King James says fierce. It's used to describe a savage beast, a wild animal. And so, more and more, we have a brutality that is unfolding in our nation. According to our own government last month, violent crime is up 30% in all of our major cities. And there are now 140 known terrorist groups that are functioning in the world today. And while we're on the subject of savagery or brutality... May I remind you that Hitler classified the Jews not as people, but as rats. 
And like rats, you exterminate them. And so our politicians say, I am personally opposed to abortion. But what a woman does with her own body is her own business. That would be like me saying, I'm personally opposed to exterminating the Jews, but what someone does in their own private gas chamber is their own business. And this brutality we have seen since the Supreme Court's decision and the kickback from major denominations and so-called evangelicals who are not evangelicals at all. There's no way under heaven that you can say that abortion is right and call yourself someone with a regenerate born-again mind. But God says this is the brutality of the last days. And we are living in a day of moral, political unrest, of brutality, difficult times. In addition, the society of the last days, notice, will be haters of good, or you could render it despisers of those who are good. So instead of honoring what is good, you honor what is evil. And so the hero today is not the man of God. It's not the evangelist. It's not the missionary. It's not the godly father. It's not the mother who chooses to stay home and raise her children. Those are not the heroes of the youth today. The heroes today are the immoral Hollywood actors, the sports gods, the athletes, the heavy metal rock band leaders, and sadly, in a world where we have rejected good, we need to hear hear and heed again. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. In addition, notice they are treacherous. You could actually translate it traitorous because it's the same word that's used to describe Judas, Iscariot. It describes people who betray other people because they can't be trusted. Neither friendship nor partnership makes any difference to them. They lie. They break promises. They betray others. They break friendships. They're treacherous. They're reckless. That means they make rash decisions without any careful thought. They're conceited. The Living Bible renders it puffed up with pride. The King James literally high-minded. They're swollen with conceit. And so these people will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. By the way, there's nothing wrong with loving pleasure. God said, you you will make known to me the paths of life, and your presence is fullness of joy, and your right hand are pleasures forever. God's not against pleasure. In fact, in 1 Timothy 6, I think it's verse 17, he says he gives us all things to enjoy. The problem is when you love pleasure more than you love God. And that's where we're at. There's a lot of people today who are not here because they're out on the golf course. They took their boat and they wanted to get a jump start out on the river. They left for vacation early. They're not here because they're lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They're being shaped by this world system in which we live in. And so the restaurants are packed, the stadiums are full, but the church houses are empty. And more and more, this is what God says it will be like. And so the Lord's Day is not even honored. There are some of you who have never recovered from the convenience of the pandemic. For seven weeks, we had our doors shut, but we live streamed until we realized it wasn't nearly as bad as they made it. But we did what our governor asked us to do. But some of you have never come back. 
And you've got the health to be here. I'm not talking about the dear mom who's home with sick kids today or someone with some compromised immune system. I'm talking about someone who's driven by fear or convenience. And God says, as you see the last days unfold, all the more you are to gather together in Hebrews chapter 10. All the more as you see the day drawing near. Implication, you can see the day as it's coming. So people say, you know, I talked to a brother, and he was a good brother yesterday. He said, you always preach for an hour? I said, well, not always. Sometimes an hour and 15 minutes. Or <laughs> he said, I, I like it. But other, an hour? How long was your movie last night? It bother you? How long is your football game? But you see, when it comes to holy things, I don't have an hour. I just want to get out of here. Well, there's a lot of churches that will be happy to help you. Look at the religious observance in the last day, point B, and finally... In verse 5, he says, people will be holding to a form of godliness, although they've denied its power. Avoid such men as these. Uh, there's no shortage of some kind of religion in America. It's often redefined now. People are worshiping the creation rather than the creator. But history demonstrates that religion and wickedness often go hand in hand. That's one of the themes of the book of Amos. In Amos' day, religion was booming but so was injustice. In Isaiah, he dealt with the same problem, and he said to the northern kingdom of Judah, let me read it to you, God speaking, I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. And these were things that they were to do and to observe. I hate them. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. And of course, Jesus made the same complaint against the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. And Paul, 30 years later, is warning us of the same problem. They have a form of godliness outwardly, but inwardly they are deficient. They have faith without works, to use James's phrase. They have form without power. They have rebellion without re religion, without reality. They profess to know God, Titus says, but by their deeds they deny him. Listen, when you're truly regenerated by the Spirit, and if you are walking in fellowship with the Lord, there's a hunger to be here today. You love the people of God. You love the Word of God. A second birth changes you. And so Paul's warning to Timothy about these religious folks who are denying the standard, who are ignoring the treasure. Avoid such men as these. So we're not to join ourselves with churches that have religion without reality. And when a believer has religion without reality, we are to exercise church discipline with a view to restore them, to help them to get right. Let me ask you a question. Some of you are listening to me today by radio, by television, by internet. And some of you I know and I'm grateful, you know, 
I got a lady wrote me an email this week, and she said, I, I, I listen early. I live in Texas, and, and then I go to my church a little bit later on. That, that's wonderful. But some of you have not led, left your cold, liberal, dead churches. There's good, godly men in your community, but you haven't left the cold, dead, liberal churches. Why? Well, because we've been here for five generations. My daddy went here. My granddaddy went here. My great-granddaddy went here. They're all buried out back. We've always gone here. Listen, if your granddaddy could get up and leave, he would, but he can't. But you should. You are not to support churches that are not faithful to the word of God. Avoid such men as these. Finally, the proselytizing zeal in the last days, beyond their moral conduct and religious observance, their proselytizing zeal for among them are those who enter into households, captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by impulses. Paul knows that those who are deceived by the devil, because the devil loves company, he tries to use some of his agents to captivate weak women. Now understand, he's not ragging on women. He just is highlighting an opportunity that the devil used to attack some women. The man's away, he's working hard. Where did the church meet? They didn't meet in buildings like this. They met in homes, and the women would get together. It's plural. And they'd have their discussions and prayer meetings and Bible study, and some guy would come in, and he would captivate them. It's a word that choose of a military operation. They worm their way in, and he goes after their impulses. You see, there is a dimension to women that's different from men. Women are far more feeling-oriented than men. And that's a good thing, because women bring warmth into this church family. Women bring warmth into the home that we don't bring as men. We're the protectors. We're the providers. Not that we can't be feeling-oriented. We should be. But more on feeling, more on impulse, they respond. And so in the history of the church, there are female victims, whether it's a Simon Magus or a Joseph Smith with his 40-some wives or a Kenneth Copeland or a Creflo Dollar or Joel Osteen. They all operate on feelings, but they all preached another Jesus, not the Jesus of Holy Scripture. And so some of these are described always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. They're weak. What do they do? They bring their husbands along. Here, Adam, here's the apple. We don't know it was an apple, I know. Take it. You have some weak woman who's driven by an impulse and not by the truth of Holy Scripture, and she'll rationalize and she'll convince her husband, and he'll follow they remind me of the folks in Acts 17 who had as their pastime a discussion-oriented religion but never came to faith. And he uses Janus and Jambres who oppose Moses. You say, where are they in the Bible? They're not. Well, how did Paul know about them? Well, it was either an oral tradition 
or a written tradition. There are some things that are written traditions, some that are oral traditions that were codified in things like the Mishnah. And when they were true, sometimes the Spirit of God would reach down and he'd put it in the Scripture to put his stamp of approval. That's something you can believe. However Paul received this particular tradition, it was true. And tradition says that Janus and Jambres were the two lead magicians that you will find in Exodus 7 through 9 and the various dirty tricks they did to try to deceive the Pharaoh under Satan's power. And that's why the Bible says, beloved, don't believe every spirit. Test the spirits to see if they be of God. And so we have people today who are denying the authority of Scripture as the infallible, inerrant Word of God. They are men of depraved mind who have rejected, rejected in regards to the faith. But again, the promises they will not make further progress for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Janice's and Jambre's folly was also. Where are you today? I'm sure there's someone listening who's never crossed the line. A dear woman came in this week searching earnestly, how do I know I'm really saved? She knew the gospel, incredibly bright woman. Well, among other things, there's the promise of the finished work by which you can have assurance. There's the inner witness of the spirit by which you can have assurance. There's an unashamed confession of faith by which you can have assurance. And there's a new direction, a new lifestyle where you want to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Is that you today? Or do you just have a form of religion without power? You say, Pastor, I'm not saved. I know it. I need to be saved. Well, come today because one of these days the king is coming. The question is, will he come for you? Now, Father, as best I could, I tried to explain this passage, and I pray that you would take these words and use them this morning and to those who will listen later. I pray today for someone who is here who's never received Jesus as Lord. Thank you that he came into the world to save sinners, that he loves our president, our vice president, our speaker of the house. He loves them. Christ died for them but he wants them to repent as he does any of us who have never met Jesus. Help someone today in simple faith, knowing what Jesus did, that he died, was buried, and was raised, to say, Lord Jesus, save me and change me. Now, Father, as we've gone through this list, you've given us this to prepare us, not to scare us. You've given us this list to help us to be aware of what will happen, that we don't need to moan and groan and grovel, but we can know that even as things get darker, it is a reminder that Jesus is coming. Help us to be ready for his return. You've told us it is not to change our responsibility, that we're not to sit on our hands, but we are to take the gospel and preach it. So help us in this new week to be faithful stewards of the treasure that you've entrusted to us to look and to pray for opportunities to tell people how they can be forgiven and saved. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.